Welcome friends to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. Hi everybody, it's Diane here at Someone Gets Me. Today we are talking about the power and healing energy of music. And no better person to have with us about how music can just inspire us than Rich Daniels. He's the music director of the City Lights Orchestra in Chicago. So I'm in Florida, he's in Chicago, and we are going to have a great conversation so that you can leave us feeling inspired, motivated, hopeful, and you can rejoice. So welcome, Rich, to the show. Thank you, Diane. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad that you said yes. And the first question I have, because reading your resume is just, it's amazing. I started reading and I'm like, wow, wow, wow. So that's why I'm going to put the whole resume in the show notes because it was really impressive. And one of the things that first popped in my mind was what started you as a freshman, you know, of wanting to get into the music and, and being a music director, the things you did from a very young age. How did all that get started? You know, like so many of us, I was surrounded by a lot of really great people in my life. And I had people who mentored me and, and you know, realized my vision and bring a dream to reality. I had a great love of music from the time I was very young. My father would play storybook albums. And I remember them all. I actually still owe them. If you look behind my shoulder, I'm one of those people who refused to get rid of, get rid of their vinyls. So the vinyls over there and the storybook albums featured magnificent orchestras and wonderful tales. And it was, I, I'm, I'm certain that the music I heard in those storybook albums played a significant role in developing me as for a love of music and for a love of these magnificent orchestrations that were a part of that. These are those, those Disney recordings that featured 70 and 80 musicians, and they were, you know, narrated by various authors and whatnot. So I think the love of music was instilled in me, in me very early. And by the time I was a freshman in high school, I really, really wanted to pursue music on a, on a full-time basis. And it was just something I felt passionately about. I don't remember why, but then all of a sudden, People were just so supportive. Some some would question my sanity. I don't get that. <laughs> right, know, right. I have a wife and four children. I think they they're in the, they would qualify that to this day. But that keeps life fun and interesting when we get to, pal- to, to follow our dreams. How blessed are we to be able to follow our dreams and fulfill what we want and have that passion still? And uh, so early on was, was a, a lot of exposure to music. And then freshman year, we started something called the Big Band Machine in Chicago, which was a a 14 to 16 piece big band playing music of the big band era. And that was uh, largely due by friends I had made who had like minds. And the father of one of those friends, a man named Jim Moore, who uh, spent his last year down by you in Florida, in the Tampa Bay area, uh, passed away about uh, five years ago, but a magnificent man, a mentor, a friend, and his son and his family remained dear, dear friends. But he played in one of the Army Air Force jazz bands. And so he took that information. He had all the charts, all the inspiration. He brought it to us. And he was without having been ever paid as a motivational speaker. Diane, if you met Jim Moore, you would say, oh my gosh, this man should have his own show because he was just so dynamic, so giving, so inspiring. And uh, what he did for me when I was a uh, young man was is unrepayable because it was an amazing sense of, of motivation and inspiration. I think that's what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. but uh, he was a trumpet player and his, 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 uh, his mentoring was just phenomenal. So we got very fortunate to run into the right people at the right time in my life. 
Oh, that's great. And you were open to receive it. You know, sometimes the right mentor shows up and the person's not open to receive it. So I think those storybook albums kind of made the ground fertile. And then when the right people showed up, you knew. Aha. <laughs> that's great. Well, a lot of good fortune, truly. And, uh, you know, for me, the, the road has been, you know, really all over the map. You know, I, I think that I tell all the all the young musicians I get to interact with, right? I find it very joyful in my life at this stage. I'm 60 years old. I look like 103. I'm not. I'm 60. You don't but look I, like you're 103 to me. Not at all. <laughs> but I get, to, I get to mentor a lot of young players through all the work I've done in television in the last 10 years. We had over 400 young people appear on the television show Empire, which I was the music director on for six seasons. And those people were between the ages of 18 and 30. And one of the things I got to tell them on a regular basis is that you're on this path, you're on this journey, you're on a road. You don't necessarily know where it's going to take you. So sometimes when the fork appears, don't be fearful of going that way. You know, I've had certain bends and twists in my path that I never, ever would have expected. And so, and by, and by having the, um, the willingness to go down those roads, it's amazing what you can discover. I mean, you know that. It's just amazing where the path of life can take us. Right. And being curious and being willing to just try the path and see where it goes. And that open mindedness is, is what pays off. And I think that that's a common kind of mindset with a lot of people who are artistic and um, creative in that way. Don't you think? I, I think so. You know, my, my favorite story of recent times is that uh, uh, I like to tell the young people that my background was as a saxophone player. My primary instrument was a saxophone. I started conducting when I was in my late teens, but saxophone has always been my main instrument. So jazz big band music, things of that nature, things with horns were always a big part of my vocabulary. But six years ago, when I was 54 years old, I was asked to sign on to uh, a hip-hop television show as a music director, which was exciting and daunting. And at the same time, I wound up touring with something called a Jerry Garcia Symphonic Celebration with a man named Warren Haynes, who's a very well-known guitar player out of that world of Grateful Dead music and whatnot. Now, right. if you'd asked me six years ago to name a Grateful, if you put a gun to my head and say, name a Grateful Dead song six years ago, I'd be dead. I didn't know their music from Adam. I was very unfamiliar with Jerry Garcia, but I found a great affection, a great love. So it was great to be able to learn, discover. So again, the, the path took me to a hip hop television show and to this magnificent artist named Warren Haynes and the music of Jerry Garcia performing with orchestras all over the country. The, the uh, Baltimore Symphony, the Colorado Symphony, we did a TV show with uh, on and on. But it was being open and not being fearful to look at an opportunity when it's presented to us and say, I can try this. I can do this. Let, let me see what happens. You know, and it's, it's just so exciting when you get to follow the road and see where it takes you. Right. And when you follow that road, it's usually got a bend in it that completely is unsuspecting. Like who would figure Jerry Garcia would pop in your life for that music? And you would love it and be part of it, you know, like that, that doesn't even seem to go together. Orchestra, Jerry Garcia, but it no. does if you're open, you know? Right. And, and, it, and it led to some wonderful opportunity. We played at Red Rocks, which is that magnificent venue yes. in, uh, in Colorado. And that was with the Colorado Symphony, 10,000 people in a packed house on Jerry Garcia's birthday, August 1st, 2016. I mean, obviously Jerry's been gone 35 years, but uh, it was a wonderful opportunity and experience, especially when you get to play in nature like that with a magnificent orchestra there are 80 pieces in the colorado symphony and warren haynes and his band out in front and what i discovered was that jerry was an incredibly gifted composer he could tell stories he could write melodies that didn't always when we sussed him out for the full orchestra with warren they, they took a little bit of a twist themselves but jerry's kids were there which was wonderful too approving and and, and complimenting what we had done and created with the project and it was just a I was shocked to find something so interesting and compelling at that age and uh, to, re to discover new music at that point.
on, which is uh, part of life, right? We always want to keep discovering new things. We always right. want to keep learning. Yes. Yeah. The more we keep discovering, I think the more it keeps us alive and vibrant yes. and cruising <laughs> yes. along, right? I, I use a, um, an analogy a lot with my clients that um, our, our teams, our groups, our peer groups are much like an orchestra that, you know, everybody has their own instrument and there's this beautiful music that goes with it. And the space between the notes is often just magical and amazing. And so I've always wanted to ask a director and I have you here. <laughs> How do you bring together all of these amazing facets in a way? Like what happens within you that does that? Because it's so, to me, it's, it's when I am in the audience listening to an orchestra, I am mesmerized. And I can, I pick out certain people, like I can feel their energy, like, oh, I see that person or that or whatever. And then I watch a conductor and I just watch it all. And to me, it's just, there's no words for the level of power of it. And so I always use that kind of as, as an analogy. So I'd love to know, how do you bring it all together? <laughs> well, it takes a lot of wonderful musicians in front of you, you know, because right. uh, conducting is a silent art form. You, you know, the best conducting requires no verbal skills at all. It requires the ability to make eye contact with people, to give them direction with your hands, your body, and to communicate in that way. It's nonverbal communication at a very high level. So it's important. When you see a conductor screaming at an orchestra while they're rehearsing, you want to go up and slap them and say, what are you doing? You're trying to offer corrections while you're conducting and, and, and bring all these wonderful people together and you're talking over them at the same time. You have to stop. You have to then verbalize if necessary and then go on. And of course, during performance, no verbalization at all. But your, your idea of using an orchestra as an analogy is, is great. We did that 30 years ago with the business community for some corporate producers I worked for around the country. And we had a program called Orchestrating Your Success. And we would bring an orchestra into the business community and the marketing department would be the woodwinds and the uh, uh, public relations department would be the, the strings and human resources would be the percussion. And we would draw analogies between their particular enterprise and an orchestra. And how when everything comes together, this great harmonic sound of this large team, there were all these analogies. They were very, very inspiring to the, the folks in the community. What we found even more fun was people in the business world had music backgrounds that they cherished, that had been dormant in many of their lives forever. And all of a sudden they're saying, any chance that we could maybe be a part of the orchestra? We, we, we played years ago. We, we'd like to think we could still play now if we sit next to somebody who knows what they're doing. So that became a big part of the program. By surprise, all of a sudden, a dozen of the uh, the people in their corporation would come up on stage with their instruments and join in, and it was uh, it was magical. I'll be honest, it, because th this took them out of their corporate environment, their safe, well known environment and structure, and it put them in a world that they loved and was somewhat foreign to, them, and it excited them in a way that was uh, it was it was powerful. It really was. It, so it brought music to their 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 events and to their special meetings, and it brought the analogy of what an orchestra means. And how an orchestra can be this great gathering of minds and, and individuals who come together and form this, this really tremendous team. And again, the, the whole concept that it's nonverbal communication, you're, you're, you're communicating if you're a musician with your instrument or with your voice, if you're a conductor with your arms and your body and your eyes. So it's, it's this wonderful connection that I think we all like to make in our lives when we meet people or when we, we walk down the street. Sometimes you, you can feel a connection and sometimes it's misread. Now, all of a sudden, you'll walk past somebody and you'll, they might have a frown on their face and you think, oh, this guy's having a bad day or he must be no fun at all. And all of a sudden, as they get closer, they, they raise their corners of their mouth and they smile and say, oh, misread that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, there's just so much to that interpersonal relationship that we get through 
music or through connecting with people with with nonverbal skills. It's 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 a uh, it's well worth studying. I think. Oh, I think that's amazing, and and I think because it's nonverbal, it bypasses the ego that's not our amigo. So as I say, you know, it bypasses all that linear stuff, and so that's why I think those people woke up in the in the program. Like you, you got that dormant part of them like alive again. It was always in there, and. And what a gift they received beyond all the rest of it. You know, they, yeah. they got to awaken that core passion because I think music, when it resonates with our heart and our brain, is can be very healing and touches us in ways that, that words are pedestrian, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, it took them out of the world of spreadsheets and uh, bottom lines and, yeah. and whatever they concentrated on a regular basis. And it allowed them to, you know, I, one of my, I, would, I don't have the exact quote, but it was President Kennedy who had that beautiful quote about the fact that a society that doesn't value the arts and doesn't value what they bring to a, to a society and to the community, there's no point in you know, really perpetuating that society forward. Without that level of engagement in our world, mm-hmm. what are we struggling for? What are we working hard for if we don't have the beauty and the, the things that, that make us a, a fuller, full, well-rounded person? It, it can't all be about work and hard work and all the things it requires of so many people, especially in this day and age when so many people are suffering and so many people are are, are, are uh, just wound up so tight. You know, I would like to think that art and music can help relieve the stress, relieve the burden, bring them to a, a more peaceful place. I, my wife is a first responder. She's a nurse in a, uh, in a hospital that has the third, third largest population of COVID patients in Cook County. And if your listeners are familiar with Cook County, it's a multi-million person county that includes Chicago. And we're right on the very edge of the Chicago city limits where her hospital is third largest population of, uh, of COVID patients. So she comes home and I know she's just stressed out. She's tired. She's worked 12 hours. She's, you know, it's, it's uh, and watching what's going on. And I hear stories about musicians who are going near the hospital or into the hospital in some cases, providing that sense of healing, that sense of, of uh, taking people to another place when they're suffering. It's, there's a whole level of ministry that people are involved with. I'm, I'm sadly not, but they, they use music in a healing way. Uh, it's, there's something supernatural about music and what it can do i mean it's you know what music is you can't touch it you can't grab it you can see an instrument you can see a piece of sheet music but the music itself is ethereal i mean we don't we don't put our hands on it it requires all of our other senses to appreciate it for the most part it's Mm -hmm. it's quite spiritual and quite magical yes totally it totally is and you can you know and like you can hear the same piece from different orchestras or different bands and have completely different experiences and because it's not tangible and it's ethereal and wherever you are, or wherever the musicians are and all those different things, bring it together to really inspire us deeply at our core. It does. And, you know, it's it's a it's a large team of people. Music is a non-competitive sport. You know, people often say, gee, who's the greatest guitar player of all time? Who's the, the best? It's, Wait a minute. You're thinking about this all wrong. There is no such thing, okay? Right. There's great art, and there's you know there's good, and there's bad, and there's what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. What you enjoy might very well be what someone else doesn't enjoy quite as much. It's non-competitive. We don't, we shouldn't be ranking it, which is why the Grammys and all the award shows get a little offensive after a while because it, it, it looks at music as a commodity, and I get it. I understand. I've worked in the world of business, uh, the business of music for, for 40 years. And I know that people have to make a living and God bless the producers who create the uh, the uh, environments for us to feed our families and do our thing. But it, it shouldn't be viewed as a, a competition, as something that you know, requires someone to be better than somebody else. That, save that for football, baseball, hockey, and basketball. That's where that exists and it lives. This is not that. 
this is, you know, what moves you to whatever level you want to be moved to on a given day. You know, and, and um, as a saxophone player, I, I still play and I, I love it dearly. But I've had occasion to be asked to play at uh, a funeral or the occasional memorial service for someone. And people ask for a specific selection. And so those are those have been some of the most moving moments that I've been a part of. And when I feel the interaction with people in those high stress situations, it's it's stunning. I'll be honest, I, I find myself almost hyperventilating because it's it's so emotionally charged. The moment is that when you participate in something like that, it, it takes on a whole other level of meaning. And uh, it's uh, it's very, very deep and worth contemplating when you come out of the other side of that. Right. It's very tra- it's transforming in a lot of ways, I believe, you know, that coming together it all gets amplified for the people. Absolutely. And we've, and we've been in a concert with the orchestra where people are touched by music in, in ways that, uh, that they can't even verbalize. You know, and that's a very, um, it's a great feeling for those of us who have been on the other side of the stage trying to bring that to them to realize that they're, they're being moved in a way that we would hope they might be moved. And they're, they're right. feeling things in a way that's very uh, powerful to them. So music is very, very powerful that way. Yes. I, that's why I love it so much. So most of us in the world, we use music for fun and for relaxation. You use music for fun and relaxation too, or what oh, do you absolutely. do? What do you do absolutely. for you? Oh yeah, even though we've got a, even though we're in Chicago, we've got a nice pool and a deck and all that, and I've got the speakers blaring, and the neighbors <laughs> are very tolerant of it, you know. But it'll be anything from Stevie Wonder to uh, to Duke Ellington coming out of my speakers on any given day in the summertime. And uh, I try to, I'm one of those people because I love the nice weather, and I try to expand the summertime. I try to start it in late April and carry it through mid to October if I can. So <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I don't let the weather get in the way way of enjoying our fun outside but yeah music is, is gratefully enjoyable amazingly enjoyable on many levels and i've got lots of playlists on my uh various uh, mechanisms of play devices for whoever is riding in the car with me one of my children or my wife trying to sometimes please them and what they would enjoy or when we play something in the yard you know it's it's all about enjoyment and and, and letting people feel it in a way that's going to move them oh that's beautiful so that just when you when you're saying that i could feel music coming like from your soul out into the world. Like it's not just your job and it's just not because the right people showed up. It's like a soul thing. Well, and, it's a, the old story. I've, I've never worked a day in my life. And I guess in some ways that's, that's to a certain degree true. Yeah. That's be- absolutely stunning and beautiful. So if somebody was out listening to us and I'm sure there's somebody listening to us now thinking like, Oh, I should pick up a, my instrument again, or I should get back into music again, or I need more music in my life. And they're, they've been hesitant or kind of holding themselves back. What would you say to that person? I would say dive in with both feet. There's no reason not to. You know, there, there's, there's always room and always time to improve ourselves. And if you feel passionately about something, grab the guitar, grab a, you sit in front of the piano, you know, pick up the old flute that you put in storage 30 years ago, drag it back out. It's, it's cathartic to be able to create music, even by yourself. You know, people find it's very, very um, life-changing for them when they can pr- create music, you know, and then people often will tell you when who aren't musicians, I wish I could. Well, the answer is you could. You may not become Paganini, you might not be a virtuoso, or that's irrelevant. You know, some of the best musicians in the world never learned how to read music. Uh, uh, quick story, uh, 2002, I was... Just starting an office in the city, I had a business partner, my buddy Dean Rolando, who's been with me for years, pianist at the orchestra, he was in the office with me. And 2002, cell phones were pretty primitive at that point. Right. And uh, I had a little flip phone, and it, it was ringing and had a number on it that I didn't recognize. I just shoved it aside on my desk. 
And Dean said, who was that? I said, I don't know. It's another wrong number. At that point, nobody had cell phones. I said, if I don't work, it's a wrong number. You know, people want me there to call me on a hard line. It was 2002. No one used cell phones. Right, right. About 20 minutes later, the phone rang again, same number. Dean saw it and I said, that's ah, it, same. Just leave it be. And he said, well, just answer it. You don't know. Just answer it. It's fine. I answer the phone. So, hello. And there's a voice of, of, with an English accident on the other end. So, oh, this is Rich Daniels. Said, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, who's speaking? And he gave me his name. He says, I'm over at the United Center, which is our um, 30,000 seat arena that the Bulls play at. It's, it's uh, the big stadium in Chicago, the United Center. I'm over at the United Center and we're doing some work on an incoming show. And We've got a guest here that wants a saxophone lesson. I know you're a conductor, but we understand you also play the saxophone. Would you be available to give a lesson to one of our VIPs today? I said, well, I'm not a teacher. I said, I've done master classes, but I'm not a teacher. But I said, tell me more. I said, well, it's just a, a VIP. And yet we saw your offices on Ohio Street in the city. And this guest is staying at the Ritz-Carlton just a few blocks away. Uh, would you might be able to pop over there and, and give her a lesson? And I said, well, I, I guess just, you know, and then he offered me some money always a motivating factor for all of us. And it was a it was a ridiculously large sum of money for a saxophone lesson. So now I'm curious. I said, fine. Because he wouldn't tell me what it was or what, what, the, what the implications were. Right, right. And, uh, the, the, the long end of the story is uh, I get over to the Ritz-Carlton and a security team meets me because they got a picture of me off the internet because I'd never met any of these people. And they identified me by name. So, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. He said, well, come with us. We, you know, got an elevator waiting and we go up to uh, the 25th floor which is the presidential suite and it's completely sealed off there's more security but the suite the floor was sealed off except for the guests who were staying there that had the presidential suite in a few rooms around them and uh the it turned out that the young lady i was going to give a saxophone lesson to was was heather mills you remember who heather mills was mm-hmm. yes she, she well she was most noted for the fact that she was married to paul mccartney Right, And she was the wife of Paul McCartney at the time, and she was a former model. And Paul was playing at the United Center that night, it turns out. And I go into the president's suite. They introduced me to Heather. They said that Heather's wanting to learn the saxophone. So she'd asked us to find someone. So you're the guy in Chicago, and we'd like you to spend an hour with her. She takes me over to the, the dining area. There was the presidential suite, massive room. And then she says to me, oh, Paul will be down in a few minutes to say hello. At which point I was having a panic attack. I said, what? Because <laughs> I didn't know what I was walking into. And sure enough, about five minutes in down this spiral staircase comes Paul McCartney walking over to me. He sticks his hand. I says, hi, Rick, I'm Paul. And I'm thinking, oh, I've, I've had this dream before, but OK. You know, <laughs> and you really don't need to introduce yourself, by the way. <laughs> Arguably the most famous musician on the planet. This went on for an hour, him popping back and forth and me being a bit unnerved trying to teach his then uh, very limited skilled wife. She didn't have any skills at all in the saxophone, but she had a beautiful horn that they had with her. And we went back and forth. And then she'd talk about Paul and she'd talk about music and he'd come back. How's it going? You know, he's, and, I, and he said, did somebody give you tickets to the show? And I said, yeah. I said, uh, you know, give us backstage passes. You know, that they just they'd come in at that point. It was just a remarkable experience. It had really nothing to do with music because I was giving a very amateur player a lesson, which I was happy to. But meeting this this uh, this legendary figure. And again, I'd, I'd worked with Garth Brooks and Ray Charles and wonderful artists throughout my career. But this was unexpected. Again, it was that road that I just that I went down that unexpectedly that morning. You know, a few hours later, earlier, I was sitting in, basically in shorts and a sweatshirt in my office. I put on a suit when I walked to the Ritz, and there I am with Paul McCartney an hour later. It was just crazy. And that story traveled around our community. It was like, okay, this is going to be the first line of my obituary, I guess. And anything I did in music is relevant. Now this guy spent time with Paul McCartney. That's what I'm going to remember for. <laughs> right. You know, and it's like, had you kept pushing that phone away, you would have missed that opportunity. <laughs> well, then. 
that's the other thing about you know opening the when the opportunity presents itself don't close the door open it wide so right kick it open yeah. <laughs> right exactly that's a really good lesson right there because a lot of times people go oh i don't know the number uh, and they push it off and that could be just an amazing experience yeah and you know honestly i've never done that since anytime i get a phone call that i don't recognize i pick it up i see who's there you know if a solicitor we deal with it as we would but i mean other than that i i would not miss an opportunity like that again or almost. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a great story. <laughs> I love it. So what is your um, most memorable food that you've ever eaten in all your travels all around? Like what's the, you sit back and you think, well, that, I'll remember that. Well, uh, I, I lack the, the culinary polish that I should probably have. I have a very basic appetite. So Unfortunately, I like meat and potatoes and I, I don't eat seafood. My wife's been trying for decades to get that to change. But as uh, far as memorable meals and something that was extraordinary, um, I, there's a couple of times I've gone to the Capitol Grill in Washington, D.C. when working there and the steaks were out of this world. They really were beyond a, a franchise of a, of a fine uh, steak dinner. But I can't think of a particular food group that has knocked me out. If, if I did, it would be something to... Your listeners probably would say, really? <laughs> so, uh, a Billy Goat hamburger in Chicago is something I always crave. It's a little dive bar in Lower Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, and it's been there for 80 years, and it's a legendary hole in the wall. But they, And it's where John Belushi and the whole Saturday Night Live skit, Cheeseburger, 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 came from from years right. ago. It was yeah. his relatives who owned the grill. So things like that are fun and enjoyable. And you know, I guess they come into the, the realm of comfort food. I think right. we all look for that every now and then. And right. uh, Taylor Street in Chicago is the, uh, the Italian neighborhood. I'm Italian by heritage, so I do enjoy going to Taylor Street. I've never had a bad meal there ever, and the Italian foods in Little Italy in Chicago are extraordinary. Little Italy in Baltimore is extraordinary. Uh, and North San Francisco, my gosh, some of the best Italian food on the planet, I think, is right in San Francisco on the North End. So, Yes. When you find really good Italian food, then you know you're onto something. Right? It's like there's, <laughs> there's good Italian food, and then there's like the really good Italian food. <laughs> right. Right, right. Same thing it with steaks. Like, <laughs> right. You know, I um, Tom Dreesen was on the show um, a few episodes ago. And when I asked him about his food, he told a whole story about this very first time he had the steak. And the and it was steak that was his most memorable food because it was his very first time eating it and how he remembered eating it. It was a fascinating story. He's a great guy. We worked with him a few times over the years. He's a Chicago boy. He came from the south suburbs of, I came from Harvey, Illinois, and uh, had a great career and his, his, his stories with Sinatra alone, I'm sure you covered, yes. uh, are remarkable. His years of being the opening act for Sinatra were, were quite quite remarkable. And he's a, I think he's just a genuinely nice human being, a really good guy. I hope you got that from him. He is. I I, I got that from him and my listeners got that from him. He it, it was one of those conversations that I didn't want it to end necessarily because it was, he was fascinating. But when he told the story about eating that steak, I'm like, wow, you just don't think of those things sometimes. Um, because other people, I, I ask that question to almost, not every, but of most of my guests, just to see what they'll say. Because when you travel all around the place, you eat things that are memorable, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, or you try things or somebody serves you something. And and um, it's always an interesting thing, but he has a steak story as well. See, so maybe it's part of that Chicago energy. Yeah, we're, beef, we're meat and potatoes here in Chicago. There's no doubt about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll butcher it to the world. Yeah, right. So. Right. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at that little synergy there. Um, 
Okay. So I only have a couple more questions for you. And I really appreciate you taking all this time because this is fascinating. So when you have a musician that you're working with or somebody in the orchestra who is feeling kind of stuck, maybe not, um, you know, like they're not feeling creative or they're not feeling it and they're kind of stuck. What, what kinds of things do you do to, to help them get unstuck? Well, that's where we speak to people. That's when you have a conversation with somebody to try and have to help them realize that this great body of work they've created in a lifetime really is, is a large part of you know what they've done and that the moment they're experiencing right now is brief and temporary, whether it's a lack of work or whether they can't perform at a level they feel they need to, it's all going to come back. It's like writer's block, I would imagine. It's like uh, you know anybody who has a, a moment in their creative career where things aren't where they want it to be. It happens to everybody. You know, so you try to, I think, relate your own personal tale of where you were stuck in the mud and where things weren't going as you would hope they would. And you try and just, you know, be, be there and support them. No different, I think, than we would support anybody who's having a hard time in their life. And again, right now, 2020, no shortage of finding people having a hard time getting through life. Yeah. It's uh, between the pandemic and all the discourse we've had in this country. It's, it's been very troublesome to lots and lots of people. Right. And I, I think a lot of people have, have had great mental anguish because of, the, because of that. Um, I've been I've had the opportunity to serve on the board of something called the Kennedy Forum, which is a mental health forum that uh, works to um, change the uh, the stigma attached with with illnesses related to mental health. It's, it was founded by Patrick Kennedy, who was the youngest son of Senator Ted Kennedy, and they do good work. It's bipartisan work. It's but it's and it's not political at all. Really, it's all about mental health, sound mental health. And uh, through that, I've worked with Renee Fleming who's the great opera diva, and she has a, a, a series called Mind and uh, Music in the Mind and how music relates to the mind. And I did a program with her three years ago at the Kennedy Center where it was about music in the mind. Dr. Francis Collins was on the program, who's a National Institute of Health Executive Director, uh, the, the National Symphony Orchestra, which I got the guest conduct, and Renee. And they had one scene where Renee Fleming was in a CAT scan. They showed an image of her in a CAT scan tube. And they had her sing while she was in there so they could study the brain well, how it reacted when she was taking a CAT scan. It was, it was magnificent. So there's all this music and the mind synergy going on right now. And mental health is a, is a, is a huge issue. And so your, your question was about basically the mental health and well-being of musicians, if they're either not playing at a level they need to or if they're having problems. I think it's just all that we're talking about, trying to pick them up and show them that they're loved, that we care about them, and that they're going to get through this. And that the body of work that brought them to this point doesn't change. The talent is still there. The energy is still there. They just need to refocus and they need to find it again. And, and they almost always do. It's, it's right. yeah. just part of life. Right. It's those ups and downs of life. And but sometimes when people are in that kind of trough area, it seems like that's all there is, you know? And so when when there's that voice that can say, yes, and look at these other things and, and I'll help you out and I'll kind of boost you up along the way. Then once they can climb out a little, they can see it, you know? Right. And you, you hope they can, because that, that trough, as you described, is a perfect analogy. I think that we get stuck inside, you know, the tunnel vision of that trough and we get, feel we can't get out of it. And that's when real harm comes to people, as we know, you know, right. whether they're artists or whatever profession they come out of, you know, when they fall into that hole. It's it's our job and our, our moral obligation, our, our our moral obligation to help lift them up out of those those, those situations in their life. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've worked in the mental in health industry since the seventies, and um, and oh. so I have been, and I've created internationally known treatment centers for co-occurring mental illness with substance abuse for people. And wow. And I um, worked for a long time with executives and professionals. I started actually the first executive substance abuse treatment center in the country. And then, um, oh then that's God. how I got into my work with all the musicians and artists and creatives is I started noticing 
in these different scenarios, they would find me. I'd look up and like all of my favorite clients were musicians or artists, either professionally or not. And it was, then I started realizing, oh, well, we're all gifted. And then I started speaking for the gifted community. And I'm like, oh, there's, and so I started finding the thread through everything all of these years. And, and I have a passion for really helping the, the sensitive people and the gifted people find their way in a world that can seem real insensitive. And, uh, wow. Well, I, I should have done my homework, Diane. I don't know all of this. This is magnificent to hear this back story of yours. This is wow. Yeah. So it's extraordinary. Th- that's where the someone gets me comes from, because when someone works with me for the first hour, they go, wow, someone finally gets me. Wow. OK, well. And, um, and so when you're talking about the mental health and and being active in that and music in the mind and all that, that that speaks to my core in, in ways that probably I have tears in my eyes a little right now because of how powerful it is. It's so wow. important. And um, we I don't and we've know. seen people, you know, to what you were told, we've seen people with great challenges that have not been able to overcome them. You know, right. it's uh, it's very sad to watch. You know, and to be honest, the, the, the last 10 years, I spent a lot of time on t- doing television shows. Uh, again, the show Empire was a big part of what I did for six years from uh, 2004, to, uh, from 2014 through just this past March when the pandemic hit. We were literally finishing the end of a sixth season. We were on the 19th of 20 episodes of 102 total episodes. And we didn't get to finish the show because the pandemic shut the studio down and they wound up creating a final episode for the series through a pre-existing footage. But I saw a lot of challenges with uh, friends and people we worked with over those six years. A lot of suffering, you know, uh, and there's no economic bearing either. You know, we, we talk about the economy of these problems and there's there's no economic bearing on who is struck by this and how they're they're harmed by it and what they're, they're what they're experiencing. Uh, it's it's. It's very sad, and it's wonderful that you have the ability to help navigate those waters for people who are coming out of those backgrounds. Because uh, I think there's a, an extra layer of vulnerability put on people in the arts, people who put themselves out there either on camera or on stage. And yes. there's a high level of insecurity. I think everybody in this industry, if you don't suffer from it, then mm, there's something missing in your DNA. Because I think it's part of what's what brought you there in the first place. Right, right. It's like people don't realize the level of vulnerability as the velocity picks up in, in the mm. arts, you know, and things. And I work with some people who are household names and and they're regular people with the same vulnerabilities as everyone else, you know, as we all know. And and they still have the same challenges and it does, it's not economic. It's I think it's sensitive. I think it's how we're wired and how sensitive we are. And then that is where the difficulties can come in. If we have that vulnerability, we don't really know how to manage it, you know? Right. And so, and well, so it's, I'm really, really excited that you're doing that work with, for people with mental health, because it's so important. People just don't realize uh, it. Yeah. Right. It really is extraordinary. And again, the, the person you should have on your show is Renee Fleming. I think you would find her fascinating. I think you would find her compelling. And uh, she has world stories, world-class stories. And if you wanted an introduction sometime, I'd be happy to make it. And I will take you up on that introduction. I could, I could interview her in a minute with that story. Yes. <laughs> well, again, her whole mind, music, and the matters a series that she's done for four or five years now, and then she did her own podcast earlier this year that was phenomenal. Uh, she had uh, the former Surgeon General on, who's about to become the incoming Surgeon General. She had Patrick Kennedy on. She had Francis Collins. She had all kinds of wonderful guests uh, in, in the field of medicine and mental health, and in particular how it pertains to the arts. And, and, and back to our, to circle back to where we're talking about corporations, I'm just shocked to find out how many people, professional people, have this great musical background in their lives. 
that it, and it was such a big part of what they did, even though it has no bearing on what they do for a living or that they talk about. Uh, Dr. Francis Collins is the executive director of the National Institute of Health. He's a guitar player and a singer. So he was on the Kennedy Center show with us. And it's funny, I didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize him. I mean, once I heard who he was, I was like, oh my gosh, he runs the National Institute of Health. I didn't know exactly. But when I saw him at the dress rehearsal on the stage, he looked like a, a poor man's version of Paul Stuckey from the from Peter, Paul, and Mary. So who's that? Who's the guy from the 60s? Because he's got the hair and all that. Look, you know, with the guitar, who's like kind of singing. And they said, oh, well, that's Dr. Francis Collins. He's a, okay. <laughs> and it turned out he was a very good singer and a, and a very uh, capable artist, but heads the National Institute of Health. But him and Renee were very close and right. remained that way. And I, I noticed that when I ran substance abuse centers um, for professionals, for executives, mostly CEOs and, and the like, all from all over, all of them had some kind of music, something or art, but a lot of them music and, and either they, it, it was quiet or they really still did it or whatever. And, and, I, and it was like, there's a common denominator that people don't realize that when you're a visionary, it comes out in different ways. And you're touched and you're sensitive in different ways than somebody who does not have that in their DNA. So it's That's quite a fascinating. Way of putting it. it is it is fascinating. And and people often hide it. I think they feel that uh, mm -hmm. it makes them look less strong if they show a side that appreciates the arts or music. If they're in an environment that you know, that's, that's, you know, that's hard bit and that's, you know, they're, they're fighting with their corporation or whatever. I think they, they feel the need to hide that sensitivity aspect sometimes in their lives. And I imagine that's for a lot of people in a lot of fields, whether you're the, the sanitation worker or whether you're the, the CEO, you feel that you can't be vulnerable. You can't show that you have any weakness. I, I get it. My wife will accuse me of that sometimes that, you know, that I won't want to shed a tear in front of anybody and all that. And, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to, to, to expose ourselves because it really, takes us completely out of our comfort zone. But I think when we do become vulnerable, I think we benefit from having been down that road. I think it allows us to feel more human and realize that we're holding something in that's probably a lot better to be let out every now and then. Amen. You couldn't have said that any better. Totally true. Yep. And I think that that's why there's so much angst in the country and so many troubles because mm -hmm. people hold things in that need to be let out in a healthy way, you know, for years, decades, decades and decades. Yeah. You know, and it's not, this is, it's not, this is a, not a, a new thing. It's a culmination of years of this trajectory of, well, men, men, you know, big boys don't cry and don't let anything out. And if, if you show an emotion, then it means you're weak. And really your strength is in your emotions. And, you know, if you act like a visionary or smart, well, then that's not good. And all those messages are, are incorrect. Mm. They're errors. Absolutely. That's maybe, Absolutely. that's as close as, close as I'm going to get. <laughs> so, um, the only last question I have for you is if there was going to be a billboard that we were going to put up and the whole world was going to see it with Rich Daniels message to the world, what would you have on that billboard? You tried to care for others. That's all. You know, I, I really do try as best I can. I've been involved with a lot of nonprofits in the, in the Chicagoland area. I've been trying to mentor my children, the young people who come on the television shows and just try and, and it's because it was done for me from my parents to more people that I could name. They cared about me. They gave me things when they didn't have to. And especially people who give you something from their life where they don't benefit from having done so themselves. It's when they give of themselves without any benefit to them having done so. Uh, it's, it's a very, very powerful memory that we're, we're allowed to have because they're doing something for you that you have to realize when you think about it, this is only going to benefit you because they're 
not, not getting anything out of this other than trying to see you be successful, you prosper, you do well in whatever you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So trying to care for others is um, something I, I, I try to work at daily. I fail from time to time, obviously, but it's it's always in the forefront of my mind. It's uh, and it's just I think it's the way what uh, we were raised and, and what we were taught and the value of each human life and how it's important to try and make sure everybody can achieve their dream. As someone like me who's been so blessed to to achieve so many of mine. Yes. Oh, amen. Precisely. I have goosebumps with that. <laughs> Is there anything on your heart that you wanted to sh- say today that I didn't ask you about or didn't come up in our conversation before we end the show? Uh, my wife and I became grandparents six weeks ago. We're pretty thrilled. First time. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Yay. So, uh, so Lucy, Therese, if you're watching grandpa years from now, know that we love you and we can't wait to see you without a mask on our face. <laughs> Hold you tight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Exactly. Well, thank you, Rich, for being on the show so much. I oh, what a delightful conversation, and you uh, shared so much with everybody. You're, you're lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, remember, everybody, keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star and you're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there and play your own song and see the magic you can create. Until the next episode of Someone Gets Me, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.